0: So I was thinking about this almost like atavistic sense of like the white American imagination going out to the frontier. And it just struck me that this is the same thing. It's a kind of white flight of the imagination. It's a flight that is a kind of avoidance of the actual culture of the era, the actual demographic and political and cultural changes that were happening. I'm Jess Rao, I'm a novelist, essayist, critic, creative writing teacher, and my current book is White Flights, Race, Fiction, and the American Imagination. Somewhere along the line, especially when I was working on my novel, Your Face and Mine, so this would be starting in 2009, 2010, it struck me that there was this very obvious parallel between demographic white flight and the movement of populations and the movement of the white American imagination away from urban spaces or shared spaces to these kind of like endless vistas, which is another way of saying I was asking myself... At that time in my career, why was it that when I was a much younger writer, I was so obsessed with, and not only me, but the sort of the literary culture of the 1980s and 1990s, why was there so much interest in writers like Richard Ford and Annie Prue and Raymond Carver and Rick Bass and Jim Harrison and people like that who are essentially writing about these very faraway wilderness or, you know, sort of empty landscapes in the West or in Nova Scotia. These writers who were going back to a almost like Thoreau sense of the individual going out into the natural world. So that was where the title White Flights came from. And what I really wanted to do in that essay was focus on writers who had been so pivotally important to me, and who were sketching out a sense of the white imagination in a state of isolation. And that's why I chose Marilyn Robinson and Richard Ford as two of the like central examples. Richard Ford, especially to me, was somebody who was hugely influential on my work at an early age. His Montana stories and stuff were something that I was, that I was just sort of enraptured with when I first started writing fiction seriously when I was a teenager. For a while, I was really trying to model myself on writers like that when my own life experience had absolutely nothing to do with any of that stuff. And I call that sort of, in terms of my own writing career, like that was a period where I was trying to take on white drag because I was trying to act out a kind of like Western, romantic, cowboy boots, whiskey bottle, cigarettes. I was trying to do that kind of thing because I thought that was authenticity. And yet for me, it was drag. It was the opposite of authenticity. It was just a totally artificial costume. So much American fiction has to do with the single family home and the sort of strange characteristics of the American single family home. The main one being that it's more space than people actually need to live in. And it creates a sense of a large psychic space. And then there's this sort of unconscious question of what do I need all this space for and what does this space actually mean? One writer that's really fascinating to me in that regard is Ann Tyler who lived in the same neighborhood that I lived in in Baltimore, Roland Park. And Ann Tyler's novels almost always feature characters who are total homebodies. They stay at home almost all the time. And sometimes they have a kind of pathological like agoraphobia. They often have some kind of shyness. What's really striking to me about her work and what I write about in White Flights has to do with the way in which her stories take place in a Roland Park of the mind. It's a white neighborhood. It's one of the first actual American suburbs. It was created very explicitly as an all-white community. There was very explicit discrimination, and there were covenants on the books until the late 20th century, forbidding Black families and Jews from living there. So Ann Tyler's work inhabits this psychological isolation of living within these houses in a major city, but you never see the city, you just see the inside of the house. The city is still there, but the city is there sort of rendered in negative. Of course, you can think about this in terms of like the gothic, like a rose for Emily or something like that. But in the late 20th century, if you think about like the emptiness of the houses in Raymond Carver, or even in Jonathan Franzen in the corrections, a lot of that novel is about this suburban St. Louis home where the kids have grown up and gone away and the parents are just sort of decaying in this house surrounded by all this stuff. And to me, that's a very obvious metaphor for the white American psyche in so many ways. In 2014, 2015, I started to think about these essays as a book. Some of the essays had already been written and published. It was in an era where there have been a lot of discussions about post-racial America. You know, there was a feeling of of racial progress. There was a sense of expansiveness about the kinds of conversations that were happening about race. And after the 2016 election, a lot of the book was already written by that point, but I realized that I had to frame it somewhat differently because the national climate, the cultural climate, had changed so dramatically. In post-civil rights America, there's often been times when there's been the sense of some racial emergency. For example, in the early 1990s, you had the Crown Heights riots, or the L.A. riots. You had the O.J. case. What happened after Ferguson is that sense of a national emergency just kept going. And this is part of what I talk about at the end of the book in the essay called White Out. At the same time, as there's this sense of a racial apocalypse among white supremacists on the right, who are very much focused on the idea that white people, people of European backgrounds are being replaced. We have the sense of a climate apocalypse, looking at the end of time, at the end of the world, because of global warming. And so these two things coming together have created a sense of apocalyptic feeling in the culture that I think has not existed in my lifetime. A lot of what fiction does is it creates a human situation and then imagines And controls how that situation is going to end. So Frank Kermode has a very famous book about this from the 1960s called The Sense of an Ending, where he talks about how human beings experience their lives as always being in the middle of a story. And when you're in the middle of a story, you always have some sense of how it's going to end, or you're always afraid of it ending one way, or you're looking for signs and signals about how it's going to end. So Kermode, in that book, he talks about how there's this history of apocalyptic thinking and thinking about the end of the world in the Western tradition, and how even though there have been so many false predictions about, you know, the world is going to end on May 26th of some year even though those predictions never come true the sense of apocalyptic thinking doesn't diminish so essentially what i'm saying is that apocalyptic thinking is always fictional and what fiction writers know or should know is the importance of distinguishing between fictions and reality Jess book, White Flights, Race, Fiction, and the American Imagination, is out now from Grey Wolf Press. Recommendations for further reading and watching are on the episode page at thinkbelt.org/interstitial. Interstitial is available wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, chances are you know someone else who would also like the show. Share it. Sound design for Interstitial is by Sam Clapp. I'm David Huber. More next week.